It's been so good to have Rob step in, hasn't it? Uh, Pastor John is uh, convalescing still. He actually was able to be in our 8 o'clock worship service this morning and worship with us in person for the first time uh, since the first of the month. Uh, but you continue to keep him and uh, Melinda in your prayers as he gets better slowly but surely. It'll still be several weeks before he's capable of leading us in worship, but uh, he's going to get there. All right, so uh, you continue to keep him in prayer. If you would please open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, find verse 18. We're in a series of messages from the book of 1 Peter talking about our, our exile. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been separated from the world. We have become other. And that other experience is what the, first, the book of 1 Peter is all about. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. There are really two kinds of suffering in, in this world. There is the suffering that is a part of just living in a world that is not as it was designed to be. Scripture teaches us that the world groans under the curse and under the weight of sin, and so there are experiences in the created order that, that aren't meant to be here, things like death and natural disaster and sickness and, and building collapse, all of these things that are just a sign that the world is not operating like it should. We, we have the suffering that is a part of living in a world that is broken. And then we have the suffering that comes because we ourselves are broken. We are sinners. We are people who choose our way over God's way. And because we attempt to live in this world disconnected from the God who designed it, things for us don't work out at times like we hoped they would. And sometimes we feel the negative effect of us having chosen our way over God's way. But being a follower of Jesus adds a layer of complexity to that already complex situation. For instance, as a follower of Jesus, when I experience suffering that is a product of a broken world, things like death and destruction and building collapse and natural disaster, I can be prone perhaps more than other, other people to, to ask God why. I mean, I, I have, I've surrendered myself to you. I'm following you. I'm doing my best to be obedient to you. And, and this has happened to me. And so our our, our understanding that God is good and yet this is my experience kind of creates a complex situation sometimes for followers of Jesus. But there's another kind of complexity that is added to the experience of living with broken people. We have been redeemed. We have been made other. We have been made exile. And that exile, different otherness, kind of life because we've surrendered our lives to Jesus and we are not living according to the pattern of the world begins to be noticed and it can begin to be met with a great deal of hostility and so there is a suffering that is unique to followers of Jesus they are suffering because they are followers of Jesus because they have surrendered their lives to Jesus there can can be a, a hostility experience they wouldn't otherwise experience. That hostility is called persecution. Now, Peter's readers, 
were in the throes of that persecution. They were facing economic hardship. They were facing being pushed to the margins of society. And very soon, they would begin to face even the ultimate hostility, loss of life. Peter, just a few years after penning this letter, actually loses his life, suffers because he's a follower of Jesus in persecution. You and I have not experienced persecution. We are not currently undergoing persecution. Evidence of the truth of that is the fact that all of us are able to be here today free to worship without fear of any kind of real reprisal or repercussion. However, it would be foolish to fail to acknowledge that the otherness of Christianity is starting to stand out more and more. In fact, as evidence as how the otherness of Christianity is starting to stand out more and more, it is beginning to be ex experience hostility from both the secular left and the secular right. We very soon are going to have no real home in this world, which is how it should be. It's how it was designed to work. But we're going to begin to experience hostility, perhaps, that we never believed that we would experience. And so in light of that, what are we supposed to do? That's what this section of First Peter is all about. It is speaking to people experiencing actual real persecution about how they can navigate their way through the persecution that they will experience because, suffering that they experience because they are followers of Jesus. So it's important to keep all of that in mind because we are about to go into a, uh, a passage of Scripture in 1 Peter that seems wildly out of place. Peter is about to not just take a right turn, it's, it's like he's about to go completely off the map, go off-roading for a while. We, we don't even know for sure uh, why he chose to do it just this way. In fact, I feel in good company, no less than the reformer Martin Luther is recorded as having said, I'm really not quite certain what Peter had in mind here. I mean, there have been books, libraries of books written about why Peter does what he does in the passage of Scripture that we are about to read. And Here's just a newsflash. I'm probably not going to fix it for you or Christendom uh, here in the next few minutes. But I can give you the general consensus of what is going on, provided that we remember two things. First, the context of this entire section of 1 Peter is suffering. Suffering for the sake of our faith and how to navigate it. That's the context. And then remember this. What we're about to read is the gospel. And Peter is not giving us the gospel to proclaim the gospel. He is giving us the gospel as an illustration. In other words, in, in talking about suffering, Peter wants to use the gospel as an illustration of, of what is involved in suffering because of our faithfulness to Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to isolate it completely from, from context. We're just going to talk about these verses not paying any attention to what comes before or after. We're just going to talk about these verses so we can see what he's doing, and then we'll pull out and we'll see how it fits in context with what's going on. All right, so let's look at verse 18. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It's my favorite verse of the Bible, hands down. This is my favorite verse. This is the verse, if I'm going to have anything on an, 
on a tombstone. This is what will be etched on it. And it's a simple proclamation of a simple truth. Christ suffered for the sins of the unrighteous, you and me, to make us righteous, to do something that no other world religion claims to be able to do, to bring us to God. Other world religions require us to earn our way or move our way to God. What verse 18 tells us is that Christ Jesus made us righteous in the sight of God by dying a death on the cross for our sins. And because he has made us righteous, he is able to bring us to God. And he did that by being put to death in the flesh, the crucifixion, and it was confirmed as being sufficient in God's eyes through the resurrection of the dead. He was made alive in the spirit. All right, so far, so good. Here's where things start to get a little strange for us. Because he says in that resurrected state, being made alive in the spirit, he went, verse 19, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. A couple things there. What does the word proclaim mean? Well, in most other usage in the New Testament, it's translated as another word. It's translated as the word preach. So there's a sense in which Peter said that a post-resurrected Jesus went preaching. Where did he preach? To the spirits in prisons. What? Who are they? He goes on to tell us this. This will clear things right up. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay, everybody got it? You good? We can move on? Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. Y you see, he's referencing here spirits who were active in the days of Noah. Now, I don't have time <laughs> to run down every rabbit trail that that could potentially open up for us. But I, I, I can give you the general consensus of what he's referring to. In Genesis chapter 6, we are told that the sons of God, which are references to fallen angel beings, that's what generally is believed, the sons of God consorted with the daughters of men to produce a race of vile and wicked human beings, so vile, so wicked, that it resulted in the flood, the destruction of the earth. We are being told here that in a post-resurrected state, in a... Uh, an event not recorded for us by any other passage of Scripture, Christ Jesus went there and preached to them. You're thinking, okay, well, what did he preach? Well, we're not told, but there are a couple of options. Option number one is that he went to these fallen angelic beings and said, you didn't know about me. And you didn't know about what I would do on the cross to reconcile humanity to God. And so I'm here to preach to you the gospel so that you can be redeemed out of prison and out of judgment. That doesn't make sense with any other passage of scripture in the Bible. Paul said it is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. When we die, we have made our choice about Jesus. There is no second chance. That's the first thing. Second thing is we're talking about spirit beings here, not flesh and blood beings. And they are neither redeemed nor in need of redemption. And so none of that makes sense. So we can lay aside that Jesus went and uh, preached the gospel in hell. 
All right? So we're left with a couple of options. And the very best option, we believe, is this. He went there to proclaim victory. He went there to proclaim final judgment over sin and evil through his death on the cross and resurrection. That's hinted at in the words that come. Going back to verse 20, they uh, formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We have to understand why judgment came in the first place. It came, we know, because God was judging a a race of vile and wicked uh, um, beings, a race of humans that had so thoroughly corrupted the earth it needed to be judged. But the reason that those beings did that was an attempt to thwart the purposes of God. See, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we are told that as a punishment, as judgment on the serpent for deceiving Eve that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, would crush the serpent's head, would ultimately serve as the destruction for Satan and all the evil that he wrought. And so, from Genesis chapter 3 forward, you can see an effort to constantly corrupt, thwart God's plans to bring about redemption through the seed of the woman. So the reason that these corrupt fallen angel beings came to the earth to produce a race of wicked, vile beings, humans, was in an attempt to stop the prophecy of Genesis 3 that Satan would ultimately be defeated by the seed of the woman. So, it didn't work then. How do we know it didn't work then? Because God preserved, gained victory over that plan through the preservation of Noah through the flood. So what we believe then is that Peter is saying Christ Jesus in his resurrected state went and to, uh, to, to these fallen beings and proclaimed his final victory. You could not stop the plans and purposes of God. Humanity has been redeemed. Satan's head has been crushed. It's a victory lap that he's doing in the place of judgment. So that cleared everything right up for everybody. I got it. Yeah, you're all on top of it. But then he takes a a kind of a a different turn That's it's hard to track with them as if it's been easy so far. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, and the this here is the deliverance of Noah through the waters of judgment, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay, so now what are, we, what, are we, what are we hearing? Is he saying baptism is the mechanism by which we are made right with God and we are saved? We've seen baptisms in our 930 service and in our, our 11 o'clock service today. Is he saying that if you do not go through those waters, you will not be saved? Well, he could be, he could be, but there's more to what he has to say here. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And then he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's a kind of a metaphorical reference to sin. It doesn't save you because it washes your sin away. Christ Jesus 
did that back in verse 18. It doesn't save you through washing your sin away, but instead it is a means to salvation because it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So, so what he's saying here is, is, is that there is something about baptism which is an asking of God to save us. Think about it this way. In modern evangelistic practice, if you're presenting the gospel to someone and they reach a point where they are saying, yes, I want to surrender my life to Jesus, we will follow up and say, okay, then let's pray together and we'll go through something that sometimes derisively is called the sinner's prayer. And it should be noted that that kind of pattern, yes, I want to give my life to Jesus, okay, let's pray, is found nowhere in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere in the New Testament. What you do see, however, is this, a presenting of the claims of the gospel. Someone says, yes, this is something that I want to do, and then the person that is guiding them says, okay, then let's be baptized. Why? Because it's helpful to think of it this way. Baptism is the ask. He says it here. It's the appeal. It is the prayer, as it were, that ask God to save us. But he is not saying baptism itself is what saves us. Why? Let's read it all again. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt, as washing away of sin, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is baptism? It is an asking of God to save us on the basis of the life and work of Jesus Christ. Our faith is in Jesus. That is what is saving us. The baptism is the prayer or the appeal or the asking God to save us on the basis of the life and work of, of Jesus. All right, so let's back up. Jesus suffered for sins and gained us the opportunity to be righteous in God's eyes, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, having been crucified and resurrected. After that, he did a victory lap to all of those that had tried to thwart the purposes of God and said, you have not won. And then he says, you have entered into that story through baptism, and you have been saved through baptism because you have placed your faith in verse 18. And then he says, of this Jesus, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. On the basis of what Jesus did in verse 18, he is at the right hand of God, the seat of power, ruling over all the world. Now, I could take verse 18 through 22 and create a sermon where we just simply teach and proclaim the gospel, and I would not be being unfaithful to the text. However, remember, verses 18 through 22 are meant to illustrate something. They are meant to illustrate something as it relates to the suffering of people who are followers of Jesus because they are followers of Jesus. How do I know? Go back to verse 17. In verse 17, he says, It is better to suffer for doing good, for being obedient to Christ. It is better to suffer because you're following Jesus than it is for doing evil. We're going to suffer, but it's better to suffer because of your obedience to Christ, experiencing difficulty because of Jesus, than it is 
to suffer for doing evil. And then he says, let me illustrate why it's better or good to suffer in that way. And he uses the, the, the work of Christ to illustrate why it's good. So what points is he proving? Here's where I start to give you some handles that might help you start making sense of what he's trying to do with these verses in context. He's talking about an exile suffering. He tells us three things about an exile suffering using the gospel as an illustration. Number one, an exile's suffering has a pattern. An exile's suffering has a pattern. That pattern is Jesus. Jesus himself suffered. It's an F, in essence, what he does in verse 18 is he says it's better for you to suffer for doing good than for doing evil like Jesus did. Jesus suffered for doing good. He suffered precisely because he was being obedient to God. So Jesus then is a pattern not just for our obedience. Jesus is a pattern for suffering for our obedience. Jesus was acting according to the will of God. He was not wanting to shirk responsibility that God had given him in any way. He stepped headlong into the plan that God had for his life, and he suffered as a result. When we are going through suffering, difficulty, facing hostility because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we need to remember, this is what Peter is trying to say to us, we need to remember Jesus went through this too. And here's the thing, if we as followers of Jesus expect that we won't suffer because of our faith, we're not paying very close attention to the founder of our faith. There is a little bit of prosperity gospel heretic that has entered into the mind of every person in this room, preacher included, where we have come to believe, we wouldn't say it out loud, but we actually operate this way, we've come to, we've come to believe that if I do what Jesus wants me to do, everything's going to be great. I'm going to get the job, the kids are going to grow up healthy and smart, I'm going to be popular with my friends, my bank account will be full. And the thing is, Jesus was obedient to the Heavenly Father, and the exact opposite was true. Here's the deal. The exception, not the rule, is not suffering for your faith. We should expect, he will go on to say this later, we should expect, actually, because of the pattern of our founder, that we will face hostility for our obedience. So an exile suffering has a pattern. It's Jesus, so we ought not to be surprised when suffering comes our way. Next, an exile suffering has a plan. Jesus wasn't crucified because God let things get away from him. Jesus was crucified according to the plans and purposes of God that exactly, precisely included the suffering of the cross. Jesus had an appointment in the plan of God for suffering as a component of his obedience to the Father. We, when we were um, required to stay home for 13 weeks last spring because of the stay-at-home order, pivoted what we were doing at the time. We were going through uh, the letters of John, and when the stay-at-home order hit, we said instead... 
we're going to go through the book of Job. And I think most people are generally familiar with the overall trajectory of Job's life. Job was righteous and he was an upright man. And God calls attention to Job, to Satan. And he says, have you considered what a righteous, godly man Job is? And Satan says, well, of course he is. You give him everything. And so through a series of events, all that could be perceived as a blessing from God to Job is stripped and taken away for the purpose of seeing, proving to Satan that Job will worship God because he's God and not because of the things he gives. And, and Job wins that battle. Job refuses to curse God, but he does ask why over and over again. He has some knucklehead friends that give him terrible advice and make him ask why and why more, and it actually gets very aggressive with his whys. And he finally gets to a point where he's saying, God, uh, I, I'm, I'm suing you. That's the language that is being used. I'm suing you. you. You need to come to court. You need to answer for yourselves why I'm doing this. Well, here's the thing. You give God the summon, you better be prepared when he shows up. And God was summoned and he shows up. And we know what goes on from Job 38 forward. Job 38 forward, God essentially says, uh, where were you exactly when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were you exactly when I ordered the, the seasons? Where were you when I allowed, and this is part of it, when I allowed good and evil to exist in the world? Do you happen to know where the storehouse of snow is? Which, by the way, if I did, I'd empty that thing out. It'd never snow again, but I digress. And we tend to read that as a rant. As God essentially saying, look, smarty pants, you sit down, you shut up, you take it. That's not what God is doing. God is saying to Job, everything around you bears witness to the fact that I'm in charge and that I have a plan. And so what you have to decide is if you'll trust me to be that kind of God even if you never know the answer. And Job says, I will. I will trust you. Not knowing that everything's going to be given back to him, not knowing that, that the, the trial's about to end, and he never does know what transpired between God and Satan. But he comes to understand that even in suffering, there is a God who is ordering and who has a plan. Jesus shows us that as well. He shows us a pattern of suffering obediently, that obedience brings suffering. He's shown us suffering according to and not contra to the plan of God for his life. But then the last thing that Peter is trying to drive home here that helps an exile in their suffering is to see that an exile suffering has a promise. An exile suffering has a promise. We've already alluded in verse 22 how there is a, a proclamation of victory that is taking place there that Christ has defeated all of the forces of evil and now is at the right hand of God and everything has been subjected to him. And that is something in which we will share as the sons and daughters of God having been made righteous by the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is something, that victory is something that we will share, but that's not the promise, I think, here. The promise is what Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing at the right hand of the Father? According to the New Testament, multiple places, he's interceding for us. 
he is he is demonstrating before God that we are his children through the blood of Jesus not that God has forgotten it but as a as a an eternal testimony to something that we have alluded to now for three weeks that when Christians are suffering because they're Christians God sees them God hears them God has them God sees us in our suffering God hears our prayers his face is against those who do evil and so when we are experiencing hostility because of our faith in Jesus Christ Jesus sees us hears us has us and him being at the right hand of the Father reminds us that there is never a millisecond of time where we aren't the center of God's attention so yes yes Following Jesus may not give you your best life now. It may make everything about your life from this point forward infinitely worse. And you'll do well, I'll do well to understand that that happens. I see it in the pattern set for me by my Savior. I see it in the plan that God had for his suffering to accomplish ultimate victory. And I can make it because the promise of God is that because of Jesus, I belong to him. So with those anchors, what do we do? I'll share something with you that I didn't share in the last service, shared it in the first one. I didn't share it in the last service just because it's painful for our family. But 19 years ago this week, my father-in-law, who was 51, woke up with a really bad headache. And within a week, he was dead. And it rocked us. You don't expect young, healthy men to die and the dominant memory I have of that entire event was the morning I woke up just probably 45 minutes before Julie's mom was on the phone saying something was really wrong with her dad I was sleeping on the couch not because I'd been banished there but because my back and it was just more comfortable for me to be on the couch and when I started fluttering my eyes awake I remember looking up at the ceiling because I was on my back and the first conscious thought I had was almost like God speaking saying I have been so good to you and it just shocked me and I yes you have absolutely you have and I gave God thanks for that and had a little worship moment there flat on my back it's all good. I didn't know that within an hour, the entire world was going to come unglued. And as I've looked back on all of that, I've understood how important it was that I was walking with Jesus up to that morning because that had prepared me for the storm 
that was about to overwhelm our family. So here's the thing. You don't know when you wake up on the worst day of your life, in all likelihood, it's going to be the worst day of your life. Whether the fact that you experienced some kind of medical trauma like we did, family trauma like we did, or because you experienced the full weight of persecution because you're a follower of Jesus. But you prepare for both of those events in the same way. You walk with Jesus today. You don't waste your opportunity to walk with Jesus right now. All of us need to have as our primary goal developing intimacy with Christ so that we can know him better, so that we can reflect him more. And the byproduct of all of that is is that when the storm does come, we can navigate that in the strength of who Jesus is rather than try to paddle our way out of it in our own power. We have to develop and connect with Jesus. So how do we do that? We do it the way people have always done it. We take in God's word. We, con- we, we have conversations with him about his word through prayer. We fast. We worship. We do all of these things that are designed not to be activities to fulfill activity, but to connect us with God, to direct our attention to God, to lash ourselves to God so that when a storm comes, we've got something to hang on to. This is what we do. Because you will suffer as a follower of Jesus. Maybe because you're a follower of Jesus. And you can make it through, provided you know well the Jesus who is your pattern. That if you, that you can navigate it if you embrace the plan of God and hold on to the promise that he has that he will never lose sight of us.